0: Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
1: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing.
0: Well, welcome back. This week's episode is part two of an interview that we did with school counsellor and author Molly Hudgens, who stopped a 14-year-old potential school shooter, loaded weapon at the ready from shooting pupils at Sycamore Middle School in Tennessee. Now, if you've landed on this episode by happenstance, or perhaps you're backward binging the podcast, then please do go back to the previous episode where Molly will have you on the edge of your seat as she recounts how that sliding doors moment unfolded in her office. And once you've listened, then head back to this episode where Catherine and I will be asking Molly all the questions that you two will no doubt have after listening to part one. So without further ado, here is part two with Molly Hudgens.
1: You know, One of the important things that I took away immediately from our conversations, it was very clear from what you were describing that this boy created a narrative. Mm -hmm. He created a narrative that wasn't actually necessarily based on fact. Right. Because he wanted that story to work with what he might do. Right. And when it came down to options, you know, he believed
2: that he could either do something, he could give me the gun, or he could leave. And I knew two of those options, I had to convince him, were not the best option for him. But it had to be his decision. It had to be his choice. He had to be able to see the validity behind relinquishing not only this weapon, but this feeling of control over that situation,
1: while not seeing me as trying to control it. Miley, what about the fact that you said when you met him on Friday, he had um, versions of what he thought was... What you know was true? Was he creating a narrative that would justify this action? And I don't think so. I
2: think that he did not have plans to do this until probably the night before or the morning of. Like, I don't think this was a a detailed, drawn out plan. I think that he didn't realize how much he needed to unload. I think he had had many things happen to him in his life that he had not talked about, and for whatever reason, quite possibly. He saw me as a maternal figure. You know, I am very motherly. I had two boys, you know, still do. And and I think that kids sometimes see that. I get to play the role of a mother without having to be the authoritarian or the disciplinarian. And I think that he watched me as he shared some things that I knew were true. And I listened and I took it in and it was, it was hard to hear. And he had not had a perfect, easy life. And I think that when I didn't appear to be shocked or taken aback or offended or you know repulsed or whatever, I think he felt like he could continue to talk there. And so I don't think this was something that was created far in advance.
1: You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you while you were talking about it is that Glenn had come to the, mm-hmm. the door. And I wondered, once Glenn realized what had happened, what did he say to you after that?
2: Well, I think at first... He felt like he wished he could have intervened. Like, I wish you hadn't been in this by yourself. But as we talked about it more, I said, Glenn, that's exactly what was supposed to happen. I was praying that nobody else would enter the equation. I was having a hard enough time trying to balance one person with what I knew and what I understood. I don't know what would have happened had another one entered the scenario. I don't know that I could have managed all of that. And It just played out exactly the way it should
1: have. I see how things turn out the way they should. And I'm a big believer in that. In retrospect, I think you can see why I would say you were in control of that whole situation, Mm -hmm. that whole time, even at the times when you felt you weren't. But all of the other people involved, whether it was his family, the other people in the school, the SRO who didn't check his Mm -hmm. email and, and text message and might've felt horrible about it. It's easy for people to say, oh my gosh, if I had just, if I had just... Did you hear a lot of that? And I don't ask because I'm just curious. We Mm -hmm. talk a lot about how important it is to act. Right, Um, And there probably are a lot of people in your situation who said, oh, well, you know, if I had just seen this or if I had done that.
2: Well, I think one of the pieces for us that made this a little bit of an unusual situation is he was a newer student to our school. I mentioned that we have fifth through eighth grades and he did not move in until partway through the seventh grade. And then this incident happened in the second month of school of eighth grade. So really, we didn't have as many people connected to him or having knowledge of him or his family as we do most of our students who start with us in the fifth grade. And so one of our challenges that we did change some in hindsight was to try to make connections with new students, to bring them in and speak with them, to, to make them feel as if they're connected to someone in the building so that they do feel as if they have a touch point, if there are things that are concerning them or bothering them. I think you're exactly right when you talk about what ifs. Some people did struggle It took me a while to realize that this did not just happen to me. There was a school full of people who experienced this in their own way. Many of them obviously hearing about it after the fact, but some who were players earlier in the morning who encountered this young man and had conversations with him, even down to the teacher who allowed him to come on to my office when he was not supposed to leave until 1030. You know, at our school, we've built a climate where mental health is very important. We believe that the safety of our students is number one, them getting mental health attention or counseling if they need it is number two, and education is number three. Because we believe if you don't take care of the first two, you can't teach anyone anything. And so that teacher recognized that morning when he went to him and said, hey, you know, I feel like I really need to go talk to Ms. Hudgens. He let him come on. And normally, that's not exactly how that plays out. So that teacher struggled a little bit with, Molly, I'm so sorry. And I said, why? That's where he was supposed to go. Thank you for letting him. You can play an if game with any scenario. And and there were people, you know, I call them the armchair quarterbacks who came in and were on the flip side that wanted to tell me all the things that they would have done or they thought I should have done in that situation. And I was able to just smile and say, but you know, that situation didn't happen to you. And until it does, it's very difficult sometimes to realize what exactly you would do. Would you run in fear? Would you stay and fight? Would you try to talk the kid out of it?
0: How much of that do you believe is because of your incredible amount of preparation? And how much do you think might have just been a natural instinct from you?
2: I think natural instinct was about 5%. I think the training was probably... 45 percent. And I think 50 percent was my faith. I probably could have been struck by lightning 10 times or won the lottery as many as I am to have survived that with no shots fired, no lives lost. So when people talk about the 1 percent or the less than 1 percent, you're looking at it,
1: right? And you did a tremendous job of preparing yourself for any traumatic, dramatic, problematic situation you might face. Right.
2: But you know, as well, even with all of your training, it doesn't matter exactly how much you prepare yourself and in what way. There's always going to be nuances in a situation that alter and change it. And when that happens, you're right. We have to be adaptable and we have to be flexible and we have to react or we can choose to do nothing. But if we choose to do nothing, there's still going to be an action. And I think in my goal in all of this was to be proactive. You know, I can't tell people. That yes, everyone should study about mass shootings who work in a school, because I think I'd have a hard time getting people to buy in. But when you look at like the works that you're doing, Catherine, and you look at the work of Dr. Peter Langman, who is one of my safe and sound schools, part of my family there, you know, his work to me made such a huge impact. On what I knew, because in the middle of this situation, without being a psychiatrist or a a mental health professional who makes diagnoses, I knew this was a child experiencing a psychosis. I recognized it because I had read about it, I had learned about it. And so I think that when you're working in whatever setting you are, it is best to try to prepare yourself for whatever crisis may come your way. And then know that even when it happens, you're probably still gonna have to think on your feet and make decisions. And the whole time you're gonna be hoping you've made the right one. It wasn't lost on me that if I made the wrong decision at any stage of this game with him, somebody could die. That was a pretty serious recognition for me. But I also knew I didn't have a choice.
0: Molly, what would you say to people who would say it won't happen in my school?
2: That's what most people say. It'll never happen here. But then when it does happen, What they say is you should have been prepared. So what I tell people is, no, it probably won't happen in your school. But what if it did happen at mine, happened to me? And I think when people hear this story, it becomes very real. I travel all over the country and share this story, but I still have this job. I'm still in the trenches. So I think for teachers and educators across the country and the world, that means something. Because I'm still talking about what they are doing. And every day is like continued research for me, right? And plus having the opportunity now to meet people like Catherine who have done research and work and have looked at these situations from the inside out. My goal always is to say, look at the worst case scenario and try to figure out the steps that could have changed it. And if I look at any mass shooting, regardless of whether it is in a school setting or anywhere else, the truth is that if you trace it far enough back, you have a kid or you have a person who feels like they've lost hope. And if we can find them, that is my goal every day here, is to find the kid. And sometimes I feel like it's just the ones that pop up in front of me that knock on the door and come on in. You know, I just always say, well, that kid, it must be their day. They're supposed to be here. So It's the recognition of we can be a positive influence where we are. And I also believe that if you love them, if you really love them, the kids that you work with in the school where you are, that the rest will take care of itself. So I tell every kid I meet with, every single one of them before they leave this room, I always say, well, I love you. You have a good day. And if you need something, you email me, you call me, you text me, and they know they can. And I mean it.
0: Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. If you're enjoying Stop the Killing, check out more podcasts from Community podcast productions like this one. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con.
1: Did you have people who left the school after that because they were so upset?
2: No. (laughs) You know what's so wonderful about it? The day that this happened, we sent out a, a school reach and only four children were checked out of school and two of them had prior appointments and were being checked out anyway. But our community and our families trusted us. They knew that if our principal was going to get on the phone reach and say that everything was okay, that it was. She did retire after that year. That was pretty much planned anyway. Our assistant principal became our principal. She is still our principal. Chris moved on to work for Homeland Security. I jokingly say everybody got promoted in this situation except for me. (laughs) But that's fine because a lot of times people get promoted way out of what they are good at doing. And I'm dedicated to staying where I think I'm needed most. This is my purpose. And, you know, this happened to me the day before my 40th birthday. So the day after when this press conference happened and all of this blew up, I told myself the next 40 years are going to be different. I'm going to live and I'm going to help people. And I'm not going to hold back because we hold
1: back so much
2: that could offer so much to other people. And so nobody left.
1: Did you have uh, students come in specifically because they kind of wanted to talk to you and touch you and.
2: And ask questions and bring gifts. Mm -hmm. We had so many flowers delivered here to our school that. I just moved them out to every part of the building we could because I wanted everybody to be part of that. But yeah, the kids did. And some of them would come to me and hug me and say, you know, Ms. Hudgens, I'm so glad you're here. And I can remember not too long ago, I had a kid who came in and he was like, "Miss Hudgens, I was watching this YouTube video. And did you know that one time a kid brought a gun to our school? And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And like somebody here talked the kid out of it. And I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> That is amazing. My goal was for them to survive this unscathed. I didn't want the kids to be any more traumatized than they had to be. And they were able to leave the school that day and never even know this happened until I guess they saw it on the news that night. So that was my gift. I said I will figure out a way to carry it if other people don't have to.
1: Well it's pretty touching I think in your position you know the kind of impact that you have. But I think all of us never appreciate fully the kind of impact that we have.
2: We don't. And sadly, it's because in in our world, you know, so much is measured by money. But, you know, I have everything I need. And I work with some of the most wonderful people in the world and love what I do. And I hope I get to keep doing it forever until I retire. I want to stay here until every child who was in our school system when this incident happened has graduated. Mm -hmm. I got that idea from Frank DeAngelis, who was the principal at Columbine. He stayed for 14 years after. And he has been such a gift to me because he gave me that idea. He mentioned it. And I said, I'm going to do that too. I was still that idea. And so that's what I hope to do. And even beyond, maybe, because it's a blessing when you have kids who come through whose parents you taught. That's a gift for me already. So
1: that's pretty special. That's that's pretty amazing. You know, I know Frank, and he's one of my favorite people. You know, I, I wanted to put you back in your office. Were you thinking during that initial few minutes? oh my gosh, this is going to take time.
2: Yes, definitely. And he came in at 8.07. I have that like emblazed in my memory. I was like more than cognizant of time throughout. I could hear the clock at some points. And of course, being very aware of when the kids were changing classes and when those things were happening was very important to me because I knew that I was running out of time or I felt like that. I knew that the counseling department is second only to the front office in nature of traffic, people coming in and out. And and I remember when I finally got to the point where, you know, I had prayed with him, I had started praying for an opening. And I remember he asked me to come back to my desk because he was worried about my comfort level. And I told him, I can't leave where I am until you give me this gun. And so that for me was kind of like the moment where I don't know if you'd say I call this bluff, but it was like I've got to move beyond just sitting here and talking and talking and talking. Because if something doesn't change, he's may give up and just feel like he has nothing to do except for carry out whatever he has in his mind. So yes, time was very much of the essence. And I remember He left this room at 10 minutes till 10. So every year on that day from 8.07 until 10 minutes till 10, I think about what was going on that day. I kind of like to be by myself during that time. But when that's over, when it's 10 minutes till 10, I'm like, well, made it another year. Here I go. Who am I seeing next? Lunch duty, bring it on.
1: But one of the other things I wanted to ask is, Are the students different now? Do they have different stresses now than they had? Yes and no. The saying that kids will always be
2: kids, there's some truth to that especially in the middle school years where it's like the epitome of awkward. You have braces and your hair grows different ways and your weight fluctuates and you're trying to decide what you like to do. And those things have never changed. And I had um, a pretty rough middle school experience myself. I think that helps me when I have these conversations with kids. So some things, no, I feel like they have not changed. Other things, yes. I get asked a lot about, has the pandemic affected our students? And I do think, on some levels that has. There have been fears there, but it's also given us opportunities to have conversations that we would have never had with them otherwise, and a lot of times I'll just ask them point blank, you know, what part are you most afraid of? What scares you the most? Let's talk about that, and then we can really look at research or data or things to help comfort them about the number of children who have been lost to this pandemic and and things of that nature. So I think that they have different struggles. Kids 10 years ago didn't have social media, and now they do. And so we deal with a lot of issues that involve bullying, because it's a lot easier for kids to do that behind a screen than to do that to someone's face. But we take opportunities, like we have a classroom guidance lesson that we're preparing to do next week, where we're talking to our students about social media etiquette, about what's appropriate and inappropriate, but also about safety and how to protect yourself online because we are seeing kids being allowed to have their own personal devices much younger than we used to we see them as young as elementary school now and so we're trying to teach them some things about that because their parents a lot of who are my age or maybe a little younger didn't have this themselves so we're trying to raise a generation of kids with experiences that we only have because we are having it along with them so yeah things are different and they are the same
0: What is the hardest part of all of this for you? Wow.
2: Nobody has ever asked me that before. The hardest part for me is that this is woven into my fabric. It never leaves me. There is never a day that I don't think about it. But that is also a precious thing as well, because I'm reminded every day that I'm living on borrowed time and I've gotten to see so many things that I would not have otherwise So the hardest part is that while everyone else was able to move on, that is still a place where I am present and progressing. I think it took a lot of courage for me to come back. Not many people experience a traumatic event and return to the scene of the crime and work every day for seven hours. So I'll give myself credit for that. I stood outside my office door the day after with my key in my hand, a little nervous. And I said to myself, good grief, Molly, it's an office. Go in. And I go in every morning. I have... The joy of working with people like Alyssa Parker and Michelle Gay, who have experienced great loss when they lost their children at Sandy Hook. And I have the opportunity to come alongside them and offer encouragement while always still seeing what might have been. And so I think the hardest part is just trying to figure out how to never let this change me because I don't want this incident to define me.
1: I want to define it. And that's what I try to do every day. Yeah, that's got to be challenging because this is what people want to talk to you about. It is. Every
2: time there is a mass shooting or attack anywhere in the world, people will send me a link to the news story. And I always think that's interesting. Some of them may think I just want to continue my research, which I will always do, probably. Honestly, I have your book on my nightstand still. But at the same time, it's always nice to when people don't remember.
1: I appreciate that. And, you know, when I spend time out socially, I spent 20 years as an FBI agent, right? I, I would almost never introduce myself that way when I was out mm-hmm. socially because then that's all people want to talk about. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think in your small community, you must face it all the time. You, you go to the grocery store, people stop you.
2: Well... Interestingly enough, though, there's a saying that you can never be a hero at home. And I think that's very true. And that I think after a while, people were kind of, I call it over mollied, like they had heard enough about this incident. And so ironically, I don't get a lot of it here. It's only if I go other places. But fortunately, I, I had had a lot of direction from the Medal of Honor recipients who have been able to kind of help me navigate some of that. You know, we have probably 10 posthumous citizen recipients who lost their lives in schools. Uh, The six teachers from Sandy Hook are all um, citizen honor recipients. And so I wear this when I talk about them for them. And I've had to learn that this represents something. I will never feel like I fit in a category with Aaron Feist and Peter Wong, who lost their lives at Parkland. I'm never going to feel like I'm supposed to be in a category of those people. But I also understand somebody has to speak for them. And that's what I want to do by wearing this and having it. It won't always belong to me. I take talking about these things and sharing with people very seriously because I do want it to help someone. I do ultimately want that. And you're right. It's nice when I just show up to a ball game and I'm Henry's mom who's keeping the stats, or, you know, I go to one of Bradley's band concerts and I'm in the pit crew lugging all the equipment with everybody else. You know, that's the real life. What advice would you give to parents? Well, probably make sure that you're having conversations with your kids. When you ride in the car, it's just the two of you. Just talk about whatever. Because something you say, they're probably going to comment on at some point. Even if the first 15 things, they're like, nah, nothing. Or how's your day? Fine. You know, eventually you're going to hit on something that will be a conversation piece. Look for opportunities to allow for those conversations to happen. If you're creating a meal, go find your 14 year old and say, hey, can you come help me for a few minutes? And while you're in the kitchen, have those conversations. Because if we don't, we're going to lose our kids to technology. They're going to grow up and we won't know who they are. They won't know us either. So I think really paying attention to them and asking them, how are you? Or if you hear of an event that happens, asking what they think about it. Those conversations, I
1: believe, are key. I remember uh, reading that if you sit down on your teenager's bed at night or your middle school student's bed at night when they don't want to go to bed, they'll talk your ear off. Two-thirds of firearm deaths in the United States are suicides, and the majority of those are rural, and that's its own concern about when it It comes to to guns and the availability of firearms. So what's the solution to that, she says, quite casually?
2: Wow, that's a tough question. I think that people in rural areas, sometimes feel more isolated. They sometimes feel more disconnected. That's a sad thing. It's important for us to try to build communities in places where people feel like they're alone or just that they feel like they can reach out or have a place to go and talk. I wish I had a good answer for that question. I don't, I still believe that people start experiencing symptoms of depression and things that could lead to suicide when they are young. I feel like some of our best mental health people need to be in schools because if we can recognize kids in crisis and we can help them get into a situation where they feel supported and they feel like they have hope and there are resources for them, I think that we can prevent suicide. But we have to do it early. We have to find them early when they first start to feel as if they're losing that hope. And they have to know how to reach out and where to go and who to talk to. So that's a tough, tough question.
0: Molly, thank you so much for sharing your time and your incredible story with us today. But I want to ask you one last question. Have you got a little tiny pearl of wisdom that you'd like to leave the listeners with before we finally let you get back to your day?
2: I think it's just that if you're listening to this, you are either a person who has hope or who does not. And the truth is that you can always find it. It can always be found. Don't ever feel like your life is not valuable. I believe that everyone listening to this, every single individual person was created for a purpose that they will find. You may be like me and you don't find it until the day before your 40th birthday, you know, I remember thinking, wow, if this was my purpose, is my life about to end? Like, is this, is this going to be over for me? And I didn't realize it was just the beginning. So for anyone who's listening to this, who feels like you don't have any other choice or your life is not valuable, or you don't want to go on fight one more day. Talk to one more person. Reach out for one more piece of help. Look online for resources. Talk to people around you who may be struggling. They may have gone through the same thing that you are, but do not give up. You are worth it. And you you may be the person who is meant to make a difference in the life of someone else. And if you take your life before you find that, they'll lose theirs too. So stay in it. <laughs> Come play with us.
0: Well, as this is a shorter episode, we want to give you a little heads up on what's coming up. But before we leave Molly's story, just a reminder that you can find the link to her book, Saving Sycamore, in the show notes. And if you want access to the video of the interview and loads and loads of bonus content, then do head over to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And the link, as always, is in the show notes. So on to next week's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about it because it's a doozy. We're tackling the million-dollar question, does gun access actually equal gun violence? But don't worry, I'm not going to be the one answering it.
1: My name's Adam Langford. I'm a professor of criminology and criminal justice at the University of Alabama.
0: So Dr. Adam Langford conducted a study of 171 countries looking at the relationship between gun ownership and gun violence. Join us as we delve into which countries you might want to put on your bucket list and tell you which ones you definitely want to swerve. There are a few surprises on the list and, spoiler alert, there is also one not-so-big surprise that makes the swerve list. You may recall I mentioned at the end of the last episode, Catherine and I met some incredible podcasters at CrimeCon in both Vegas and London this year who create ethical and compelling content. So let me introduce you to one such podcast, Crimepedia. Hi, I'm Cherry.
1: And I'm Morgan. And we host the true crime podcast, Crimepedia, where we investigate unsolved crimes and cold cases from across the world.
0: We work with law enforcement and victims' families to help spread the word about cases that need more help.
1: So join us every Tuesday wherever you download your podcasts.
0: And follow us on social media. Just search for
1: Crimepedia. and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I
2: host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth. Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South.
1: Please join us on Impact of Influence and give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.